Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a new partner, Arostia, a new coffee roaster based in Queens. This company was created by and is run by a huge fish fan, Andy Hollander, who hasn't caught a hold your head up since 12, 15, 95, but is definitely not bitter about it. I've had this coffee and it's really great. Andy started roasting coffee during the pandemic, taught himself, and then that turned into this label, Arostia, which launched late last year. I had a bag of the Ethiopian coffee and it was gone really quickly because I liked it so much and I drank a lot of it and I need more. The beans were grown at an altitude of 2,100 meters above sea level, which contributes to a dense bean that continues to develop its flavors after the roasting process is done. The tasting notes include apple, raisin, and caramel, and there are more coffees coming very soon. So support this fan-owned business and try the coffee today. And for Osiris listeners, there's a 10% discount code on the site. Use the code OSIRIS at checkout for 10% off your order, and stay tuned for the launch of a coffee subscription. You can order and sign up for the mailing list at arostia.com. That's A-R-O-A-S-T-I-A.com. And you can find Arostia on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks, Arostia. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. I want to tell you about a podcast I'm really liking. It's called 27 Club. It's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27. And season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died at 27 and he lived a life unlike any other. He was pretty busy. He was busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, 
busy stealing trucks with Neil Young trying to get to Woodstock on time, dosed with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghosts of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. All these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. You can subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Check it out. At Osiris, we know that many of our listeners are making it out to live music shows all the time, and we love that. We want to help connect you with the artists and music you love, so those live experiences are even more meaningful. We also want to make sure music fans stay safe when they're out there having fun. The unregulated sale and use of substances is common at many live music events, and unfortunately, so is drug misrepresentation. That's why we're proud to partner with Dance Safe to raise awareness about this danger. Dance Safe is a nonprofit organization that provides screening services, peer based education, and support to help people make informed decisions about their health and safety. DanceSafe prevents harm from consumption of misidentified substances for thousands of people every year. When you're out there seeing your favorite artists, dance like nobody's watching, but dance safe because your life may depend on it. To donate or learn more, visit dancesafe.org and look out for their booth at your next live music show. What's up, everybody? It's the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 171. This is RJ. I'm here with Matt, and Matt and I are very close geographically, but so far away. I know. It's amazing. Like, we're usually uh, way further apart from each other, and now we're, what, maybe about a mile from each other and forbidden from seeing each other. We did plan on potentially standing across the street from each other with beers and yelling bad fish opinions at each other. We should do that. We could, actually. It's kind of a ghost town out there, so (laughs) it wouldn't be too weird if we did it. So, Matt, um, everything's, like, our lives have changed dramatically over the past two weeks. It's it's crazy, and I assume it's going to change more. Um, We talked about this on The Drop last week, and we're working on some stuff that we're hoping to do during this period, like some virtual concerts and and things like that. But what's your take on sort of where the music industry is now? Like what's going to happen over the next several months in your opinion? And how should music fans be, uh, be taking this all in? Yeah, it's a shame because I think that the big problem right now, as far as we can tell is, uh, we don't have an understanding of how long this is going to go on. Right. And once things kind of normalize again, like what it's going to take for the concert and kind of live events industry to kind of, you know, ramp back up for things to get scheduled, how it's going to impact, if there's going to be like restrictions on, you know, crowd sizes and stuff like that. So nobody knows. I mean, my, um, my heart goes out to all the, the artists, uh, and everybody in related jobs, people that work at venues, people that work at bars near the venues, um, all that stuff that everybody that's affected by this. Um, there's a lot of artists that we know and love who this is a disappointment and they're going to lose some revenue and stuff like that. But there's a lot of other people that this is going to be pretty devastating for because they really rely on every penny that they get out of, uh, creating great live music experiences. So, you know, when you see some of these live streams that people are doing, if they're taking donations, if they've got Patreon accounts or anything like that, you know, what I'm doing is I'm taking the money that I would have spent going out to concerts, you know, for the time being and, and putting them into that stuff, into buying albums on Bandcamp, um, you know, anything that we can just to kind of keep keep these folks, uh, you know, in, in, in some money and, and eating and whatnot. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, after I after I bought out the entire nation's stock of toilet paper, then I started giving money to to musicians. Um, that, was, <laughs> that was not a good joke. Um, no, but it's interesting. Like there are people like agents and managers and others who work on totally on commission. So some of the artists, like you know, they get merch money and other stuff. And obviously, there are splits with some people and all that. But there are people who will like not have any income until concerts start happening again. I mean, same with the service industry at restaurants and many, many, many other industries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things that I've seen uh, that could be helpful that I'd love to take advantage of if the opportunity comes up, seeing some musicians offering um, opportunities for uh, lessons over Skype calls and stuff like that. So um, that's another good, you know, way to support uh, some of your favorite artists and also, you know, maybe learn a little bit something from them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just just think about how you can help everybody out in general right now. If we all kind of work together, then uh, hopefully the impact won't be too bad. Yeah, and I think by the time people are listening to this, it's, it's sort of sunk in that the recommendations about social distancing and not gathering in big groups is, is pretty legit. And, uh, you know, from a fish perspective, like, the my take is the more we adhere to the rules, the more likely it'll be that we'll see fish sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bummer. Right. And I mean, even if it comes down to summer tour being canceled or something like that, you know, if that's the thing that has to happen to make sure that summer tour can happen for the next 20 years, then then let's do it. Also, if you want updates and news about shows that are canceled, about couch tour shows, about virtual shows, and any other updates, you can check out jambase.com slash coronavirus. And they're also bringing in news from around the web on, on this as well not just about what's canceled but about what else is happening and and how things are going to develop so check that out so so matt we have a pretty cool episode and um we've dealt with some kind of uh, big issues on this podcast you know aside from all of our joking and bad opinions and and i think this is one of those really important um episodes and it came together through a connection that you made um what like a, a long time ago yeah so um shout out to uh, my friend jen haran uh we i saw her at merriweather last summer and when we i got in the parking lot and, and found her she's immediately said you know you've got to meet my friend joel he's been working on a really cool research project you've got to have him on your podcast um so i met i was introduced to, to joel gershon uh who he did a research project that he actually presented at the fish studies conference in oregon uh last year um and it's all around uh the experience for for deaf and hard of hearing fans in the community. Um, mostly, these are all fish fans that we talked uh, to, um, but they shared their experience uh, with Dead End Company and some other bands as well. Um, Joel's research not only kind of talked about um, what the experience is like for deaf and hard of hearing people at shows, which in itself I actually think is really, really fascinating. Um, the part that I wasn't expecting was to help us understand how the experience is sometimes not great um, just for reasons of logistics uh, and the, you know, the actual experience in the venue, like where they get placed, the kind of interpreters they have and things like that. So as we were talking to Joel, it became very obvious that uh, this is an important story to share um, because I don't know that the, the fan base in general is aware of what the experience is like for these fans who, as they pointed out several times, you know, pay the same amount of money that we have to pay and go through the same hoops to, to and sometimes way more difficult to get tickets um, and how that experience is, is a little bit lacking sometimes. Yeah, and, and um, if you're listening and you're thinking some things like I was thinking like, Wait, so how do people who are deaf or hard of hearing, why do they go to concerts if they can't like hear the music? And and we did ask 
our guest about that. And, and we had some really enlightening conversations about how people experience music, which I thought was really fascinating. But also, to your point, Matt, not just that they pay the same price, but sometimes they pay the same price and then can't even be in a situation where they can see an interpreter or even have an interpreter. So I didn't realize that the dead had like totally addressed this like decades ago. Um, so I learned about that too. Yeah, so um, it's a really interesting uh, discussion. I was disappointed. Unfortunately, I, I had a family thing come up, and I wasn't able to join you guys the day that um, you did this. But uh, in listening back to the conversation, it was extremely uh, enlightening. Um, we should talk a little bit about how the recording process and experience for the listener is going to be slightly different than a normal episode here. Um, RJ, you, since you were in the room with everybody, maybe you can explain the way that um, we were working with the fans as well as interpreters that we had there. Yeah, sure. So we were at American University where Joel, um, the guy who, who set this up that Matt mentioned, um, he's a lecturer in the School of Communication. So he set up this conference room and we had uh, four fans and four interpreters, two fans and two interpreters on the phone and two fans and two interpreters in the room. And then, uh, me and Matt, me and Joel, sorry. And, um, it's interesting because you'll hear people talking, you'll hear me talking and Joel, and then you'll hear the interpreters speaking on behalf of the people they are interpreting for. So you might hear, if you hear the person say, this is, and then a name, most likely that person's interpreting. We do have an interpreter, Donnie, who kind of speaks for himself at times, and he'll he'll clarify between this is Donnie speaking for myself versus this is Donnie speaking for Aaron, the, the fan he was interpreting for. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, don't be surprised, for example, uh, one of the fans, Mike, was being translated by a woman named Megan. So um, when you hear Megan say, hey, you know, this is Mike, you'll, you'll understand what's going on. The other thing um, that I wanted to point out, now, I, I whenever we have these types of conversations, there's obviously a bunch of editing that has to happen um, just to make the conversation flow really well. Um, usually that's me taking out something dumb that RJ said uh, that he texts me. Which and is says, rare. He, he texts me and says, hey, people can't hear me saying that. So I take out things like that or awkward silences. Um, this was a little bit different. I, what I did was I wanted to try to keep in really every word of the conversation because I thought that it was all extremely important. The nature of the conversation and the, the process that RJ just described means that there were a lot of um, pauses in the audio where, for example, maybe RJ asked a question, uh, an interpreter had to, you know, interpret that to sign language um, for the, the respondee. They started to sign their response back and then the interpreter starts to speak. So I did kind of tighten up some of those gaps just so that the podcast listening experience here flowed pretty well for you. Um, but you will hear actually at times, there's some spots where I left it in where you can, it sounds like people are talking in the background. That's actually communication between uh, the, the question respondee and um, the interpreter and then the interpreter back to, to the mic. So, um, you know, we'll, you'll hear a little bit of, of that as the, uh, as the episode goes on. Yeah. And I just, I should say that um, the people I introduced everyone at the beginning, but um, you'll you'll hear from several people, and and hopefully this will all make sense when you start listening. But um, you know you should just pay attention to to who's talking, and and I should say about the transcript as well. We'll have a transcript of this so that deaf and hard of hearing fans can follow along and and enjoy the episode. And we did that with Freak Flag flying per the request of Steve Silberman, the host, and we're hoping to do that a lot more with with a lot more. Uh, a lot more of our podcast just to make it more inclusive and make sure that people can enjoy podcasts, not just in a uh, listening form. So 
I guess we should get in. Should we get into it, Matt? Yeah. Um, let's share the conversation uh, with, that you had with everybody. Um, once again, I think this is a, a very important topic. We've we've covered some heavy topics in the past, but um, this is one that uh, came out with kind of surprisingly. Um, I don't think this was on a lot of people's radar, and it also ends with a lot of really really good recommendations about how the experience can be made better for uh, for these fans. Cool. And um, of course, if you like what you hear from us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That would be helpful for us. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll get you guys on the on the flip side. We'll keep bringing this stuff to you as much as we can. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Let's get into the conversation. Keep on rocking, everybody. All right, so I am here at American University on a Sunday with, I think there are 10 of us total. So this is an experiment and something really important that we want to do and that we've never done before. So um, I'm going to introduce everyone and then we're going to talk a little bit about what this episode is about. So I'm RJ. I think most of you listening know that. And on Skype, we have Donnie, who is an interpreter with Aaron. And there's Beth. Also on Skype, who is an interpreter for Chris. Chris and Aaron are both fish fans who are going to participate in the conversation. And then here in the room, I have Joel Gershon, who you'll hear from him in a second. He's the reason that we're all here today. And we have Katie, who is interpreting in the room, and Megan, who is interpreting for Mike. And then Mike and Brian are also here, two fish fans. So thank you guys all for joining us, guys and ladies. So... I guess first, for people listening, Joel, can you tell us a little bit about how we ended up in this room and why we're all here today? Yes, I definitely can. It uh, it all started when I, I teach here at American University at the School of Communication, and I saw uh, online that there was the Fish Studies Conference that took place last May at Oregon State University. And since I teach here and research is... Uh, important part of being a professor. I knew that there was no way I could let this opportunity to potentially present or be a part of that uh, fish studies conference go. I couldn't let it go without uh, trying to at least submit something and seeing if it got accepted. So I was thinking of topic, or I was trying to think of topics. And uh, I was at New Year's at the New Year's show last year and this year as well. But this all happened last year. And I was walking out on New Year's, and right in front of MSG, I saw two people having a you know American Sign Language conversation. So it kind of just hit me as soon as I saw it. I was like, "Whoa, that's pretty interesting. Uh, maybe I should introduce myself. Maybe that could be a topic." So I did. I went up to them, introduced myself, got their information, and I pretty much. Uh, from there, spoke to those two, or you know, I reached out to them and, and got learned as much as I could, and then kind of step by step, person by person, organically, I got to know a bunch of people uh, who are deaf or hard of hearing, as well as interpreters, and uh, my I, I put in a uh, an abstract to the Fish Studies Conference, got accepted, and then I really dove in over the next several months to learn everything I could about. Uh, what it's kind of like to be uh, a deaf person and a fish fan and the issues that kind of come up. And I 
present, I presented last May at the Fish Studies Conference, which was an incredible experience. And I can say that I learned a tremendous amount thanks to uh, the people that we're hearing from today. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up meeting Matt, your co-host, who's not with us today. And uh, I met him at Merriweather last summer, and I was just telling him about my research, and he seemed to think it would be a great idea for a show. So here we are several months later, and uh, very excited about uh, the opportunity to kind of let your listeners know a lot about the, the things that I learned, and of course to hear from these deaf fish fans and hard of hearing fish fans for themselves. Thank you. So I want to go around and, and maybe have each um, participant. So so we have four fish fans. Well, we have actually 10 fish fans here, but four fish fans that we're going to um, get the perspectives of Chris, Aaron, Mike, and Brian. And maybe we can start um, on the phone or on the video. Um, Aaron and Chris, I'd love to hear from you all, just so our listeners know, how do you describe yourselves um, in terms of and how should we describe you all in terms of deaf, hard of hearing, and what's the right way to to describe and talk about people um, like you? This is Chris. Um, I'm 42 years old. I am from Boston, Massachusetts, just to introduce myself. I am deaf, uh, but I do wear hearing aids on both ears. I do use my voice when I choose to. I grew up being educated orally, um, I, but I did go to a school for the deaf. Um, and then I was mainstreamed, but my love for music didn't really show up in my life until I was about 12. I bought my first CD, Beastie Boys, and Arrested Development, and uh, then needed more access to music from there, so I kept adding to my my uh, musical preferences. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Aaron speaking. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I am consider myself hard of hearing. So what that means, uh, I have a lot of hearing. I have a lot of access to sound. I do wear hearing aids. And I go to a lot of shows. I go to a lot of Dead and Company, any Grateful Dead-related shows. And I'm really blessed to have the amplification that I have, the access to my hearing through hearing aids. Uh, I do feel the music in addition to not only what I can hear, but through the vibrations the rhythm and the, the beat and the sounds that I feel through the, uh, through the uh, arena. So that's kind of where I'm at. Thank you. Um, Mike, can we hear from you? Okay, so my name is Mike. I went to a mainstream school for elementary through high school, and I was one of the only deaf people in a hearing classroom. I do remember my first experience with music probably was with, with Pearl Jam, one of my old favorite bands. And when it comes to calling a person deaf or hard of hearing, it depends on the person's cultural sensitivity to the culture itself. For example, I call myself deaf, but other people could could call themselves hard of hearing or whatever they prefer because of of the cultural um, context. But it's important to keep in mind that when a hearing person approaches a deaf person, you got to make sure them the appro- you have to make sure they call them the appropriate name. You you can say deaf or hard of hearing, but the word hearing impaired is not used anymore at all. Thank you. How would a hearing person know? Like you're just saying, use use hard of hearing or deaf. 
either if you don't know. Yes, that gives the option then to the person of how, what, how to call them the appropriate word for whatever they choose. You know, for example, I could tell anyone that, you know, Brian is deaf, but in his eyes, he might be hard of hearing, right? So, so it really depends on how the person reacts based on their experience. Because all deaf and hard of, people, hard of hearing people are not all the same, so. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Brian, can we hear from you? Uh, Brian, I, let's see, I'm hard of hearing. I grew up in a mainstream environment, uh, which is sports services from the school. Uh, my first real deaf experience was actually in Rochester Institute of Technology, um, deaf school. Uh, my first music experience probably goes all the way back to the days of U2 under Blood Red Sky. Um, went to the show, Joe Louis Arena. Ever since that, I've been hooked into music, go to more and more show whenever I could. Um, through the years, I picked up all different kinds of music, venues, uh, rock, alternative, hip-hop, jazz, industrial, Funny much, whatever you can name it, I probably heard of it, liked it or didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what else to say. But so, so you're yeah. from Detroit? Actually, yes. Uh, Flint, Michigan, actually. Okay. Yes. Born in Detroit, uh, grew up in Flint, okay. uh, went to school in the township of Flint, not the city of Flint. Okay. Um, yeah. I know the water is still pretty bad out there. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, yeah. So... Well, thank you. And, and uh, Brian, maybe we can just stay with you because I do want to talk about fish. What, what was your first first fish experience or, or a memorable fish experience that, that made you realize that you <coughs> wanted to be here however many years later still following the band? My first fish experience actually was 2014. Uh, it was the night before the Tweezer Fest. Okay. Um, my buddy Mike and I, we were just kind of, hey, want to go to a show? Sure, why not? We went to the show. After the show, we just kind of like, whoa, this is awesome. We tried to get tickets for the second night. It was already sold out. Uh, but that show was pretty much the rabbit hole. Uh, three months later, we went to the show in Miami, Florida. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much uh, what did us in. Uh, ever since that, it's been, fish is coming. One of the, one of the shows, okay, we tried to see if we can make it to the show. Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And Mike, same, was it same experience, first exposure a few years ago? Yeah, it was the same experience with him. But I did hear uh, some fish a couple years before that, but I didn't really understand the meaning behind that until when actually went into the concert. Um, but I do want to add, um, when we went to Miami, that was the first time that we experienced... A big, a big issue with the interpreters because when we arrived there, the setup was not great, the seating. Um, we were second floor, and the interpreters that were there to interpret there were not music interpreters, and they kind of freaked out, and some of the songs were not appropriate. <laughs> um, so that was my, you know, my, my memory of that piece of it, too. And then, yes, but that did get me into the same rabbit hole. Wow. Um I was at that Tweezer Fest show and the night before and the Miami shows too. So those were all, those were good ones to, to see. I mean, the night before the Tweezer Fest, I think was a really good show, even though it doesn't get as much recognition. Yeah, uh, this is Joel here, the guy who did the research. Um, I would say uh, I would love for um, 
for Brian and Mike to expand a little bit about the inappropriate song because I think that that's a really funny story that I included in my research. This is Brian. Um, some of you guys know there's a song called Sleeping Monkey. It refers to something else. Um, during the lyrics, the interpreters that we have, one of them was kind of cringing when she was interpreting the song. That just kind of made it like, don't do that. You're supposed to just interpret, not show your facial expressions with disgust. It was just a little uh, off. But other than that, it was a great show, but it was just, you know, some of the songs, they really didn't agree with the lyrics, and it was just kind of uh, like, uh, don't do that. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see how that could be a little bit of a buzzkill to be... <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yes. Um, Aaron, can we hear from you on, on your first fish experience or what turned you on to the band? Yeah, hi there. This is Aaron speaking. Well, I come from a background of a lot of Grateful Dead music, and uh, I've probably been to 40-plus Grateful Dead shows, uh, even with Jerry in the band. So, you know, I've kind of met a bunch of friends in my younger days and in college, and friends of mine told me, you got to listen to Fish. got to check out Fish. If you're into this, then you might like that. So I went out, checked it out. I said, okay. And at first, I thought it, was, it sounded okay. I, I, I do remember my first show. It was 1997, and that was the first show at Gorge. And I have to say, in hindsight, that experience was absolutely amazing. You know, if you want to compare and contrast that to going to a Dayton Grateful Dead show, it was like, it was like going to a circus, a Grateful Dead circus. It would, no, I'm sorry, scratch the circus, but what I meant to say, it's like going to church. It was like having a reunion with my church community. So, you know, going to fish, on the contrast, was more like going to a fun house. And I absolutely love it. I have a great crowd, a great vibe, a great group of friends. And, of course, Trey really knows how to play to the crowd. He really plays to me as an audience member. I think I've probably been to over at least 50 shows for fish. Excellent. Thank you. So, Chris, I know you're from the Northeast. So you, I wonder how long your history is with the band. So after I bought my first two CDs that I was mentioning, I definitely felt like I needed to explore more uh, albums. I bought three for 11 cents at the time. It was like a book club where you could get CDs for a penny. And, you know, you could get them for 11 cents each. So these CDs did not cost an arm and a leg. But Fish, um, it was like the best deal of all time. Or Hoist. It was a bargain. So I bought that. And I was checking out the lyrics of Fish and what they were all about. And I knew that I needed to get myself more of that. But it was hard to find back then. It was hard to have access to the music. I went to a store called Newbury Comics and they had Junta and I bought that and I got it home and I lit up and uh, hot boxed in my car and checked out Fee. And I was trying to listen to the lyrics and you enjoy myself. I think I was hooked after I heard that it was a done deal. I had to have more fish. Um, so I went to my first show in 95 and, uh, was blown away by the experience of seeing the spinners, 
um, and the crowd and the vibe there. It was definitely something I was into. Um, and then Clifford Ball um, pretty much uh, blew me away. Um, and I was, that was it. I was in it ever since. And Chris, how many shows have you seen, do you think? I'd say to date, 58. Really cool. So, Chris, I want to stay with you for a second because you were describing um, the first time that you listened to Junta. So for the people listening to this podcast who are wondering, how do you hear music and how what does listening to music mean to you and how I think most people listening might feel like they're misunderstanding or like we're, we're ignorant, or at least I feel ignorant about it. So what does it mean to listen to music to you and, and how, and how does that actually work? Well, speaking of fish specifically at the shows, I definitely am watching each of the members of the band and I'm familiar with each of them and their work. So sometimes I'm just watching the band, seeing who's jamming out, who's shredding at that moment. Um, I also love jazz as much as I love heavy metal, so I can follow the different styles. Well, I do want to get more um, it, feedback on that part. Uh, maybe Aaron, if Aaron has thoughts on, you know, listening and hearing the music and, and experiencing the music live, what does that mean to you, Aaron? Well, the experience of a live show is, uh, it's remarkable. It's just remarkable. And... You know, to be able to interact with people who are also doing the same thing, people who love the music, uh, people who are jamming involved in the vibe. Uh, it's just a beautiful experience, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Um, Mike, do you want to give your input on that? Just what, what hearing the music is to you and, and how you experience the music? Well, it depends on the individual. But for me, I wear hearing aids and a cochlear implant. So I can hear most specific, more specific levels of music, but I, I'm never able to understand the lyrics 100%. So I have to train myself to learn the lyrics, you know, myself. And then that helps with, you know, like with um, Twiddle or, oh, I'm sorry, Twitter. Um, and to identify the song if I look on Twitter um, and then I can see what song it is. And then you know, instead of just having, you know, doing the, the guests and try to guess to see what song it is next. Um, so when I hear the music, um, I can actually, it's real and I can feel it. It's like when play, when Paige plays and he does the famous synth thing, I can feel it and I can hear it. But with deaf people in general, I think that we feel more, a little bit more sensitive to the sounds than we actually are hearing and trying to understand. So when we see them live, it feels like it's it's real. It's where we're close to the speakers. We, you know, we can see how they're reacting, you know, to what we are feeling or listening to, as opposed to if I'm listening on a CD or, you know, on my iPhone or something. I, I can feel it somewhat, but it's not loud enough to, you know, in like it is in the arena. Thanks, Brian. My turn. Um, to sum it up, you know, without making it sound too complex, when I go to a show, I immerse myself into the music. Lyrics are hard for me to understand at times, but there are some sounds where you can pick up on a lyric, like tweezer. You know, it's, it's easy to pick up, but some other sound, the vocal is very softer. At the same time, I'm watching people play, I'm sorry, the band members play. I can see 
who's playing what if I look at them. Like if I see Trey, I can focus on music, what he's playing with his guitar. Fishman, the drums. Uh, he's, he's doing, you know, whatever he's doing with his instrument, than piano. It's mind-boggling at times. And then we have Mike. Um, for example, Colorado, uh, I think it was two years ago, Mike did the Swimming Coil outro. That was really nice. And just seeing him up there by himself, and you can actually feel the music. Uh, also, when Mike dropped the bass bombs, usually I place myself closer to the front in front of the speakers. When he dropped those bombs, everything just shakes. And sometimes I feel bad for the interpreters. They're just like, my ears. Like, too bad. You're paid to do this work anyway. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> um, but for the most part, uh, I enjoy the music more. It's easy to recognize and pick up. Uh, also, I try to pick up some of the songs that I can recognize with the intro. You know, like, everybody knows the opening trees, or they can recognize the rips. Mm-hmm. Another song, Fluffhead, which is a slow intro, it draws in, and everybody hears the intro. Um, I also use the Twitter feed for fish for the songs, providing the cellular reception in the area when it works. Uh, but basically, the music and the light, everything, is it's an immersive experience. Great, thank you. Joel, do you want to jump in? Yeah, so they touched on some of uh, the things that I came up with in my research, but uh, specifically, um, as uh, Brian just alluded to, you know, obviously the light show, Corota, is, uh, you know, something that I heard a lot from my respondents as one of the big draws. And uh, when I was doing my research, I uncovered a quote from Chris Corota where he said, more than just watching musicians play, you see a visual mood. And then he's saying, I'm able to enhance or augment a certain song with the right colors to create the same mood that the music itself is trying to project. You can tune in people in yet another sense, so to speak. So I think that kind of like is the perfect quote from Chris Corota himself to kind of, uh, I mean, I don't want to speak directly for deaf people, but like I said, this is something I heard over and over again when I, uh, when I was interviewing people and getting information. And, uh, and the other things that they mentioned uh, were lip reading and, uh, you know, just seeing the band's emotions on stage are, you know, it seems to be major, uh, you know, majorly important things for the deaf and hard of hearing community. And, uh, of course, there's the, the glow stick wars and things like that. And uh, it's kind of more of a thing with uh, deaf and hard of hearing Grateful Dead fans who are also known as deaf heads. I don't know if anyone here saw Long Strange Trip, the, the uh, documentary series that was... Uh, uh, aired a couple of years ago on Amazon, but uh, that came, that was kind of a precursor to the fish deaf scene. And uh, one thing that I think is, seems to be more popular among deaf heads than maybe the fish deaf and hard of hearing crowd are holding onto balloons uh, for that extra kind of vibration. I've seen some fish fans do it, but it was sort of it's sort of like a I think part of the deaf head community more to hold onto balloons to really feel those vibrations. And I've tried it myself, and yeah, you really do feel it. Um, thanks, Joel. And I think Mike or Brian wanted to add something. Yeah, I wanted to add something to what Joel was saying. So when Brian and I tend to go to concerts, we rely often on, you know, visual. The, you know, the lights are very important because with Chris, you know, when he does it, it's magic what he does. It always fits, you know, the lyrics and, and it fit and actually makes us feel like 
we're actually kind of hearing the music through our eyes, I guess. Um, so when I use the balloon or something like that, then we can feel the vibration through the balloon. I don't mean I inhale it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> and sometimes, for example, in Miami or any un- indoor arena, the sound tends to echo. And that actually helps us feel it even more. So, for example, me and Brian went to see J-Rad at Red Rocks. And that was one of the best experiences in terms of actually feeling the music there. Because it's inside and the echo as well. Mm-hmm. So Off the rocks, too. Right, right. <laughs> Amazing. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private environment. It's so convenient. You can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There's 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states. It's available worldwide. And you can communicate with them via text, chat, phone, or video. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, professional, and affordable. And best of all, it's even more affordable. Helping Friendly Podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code HFPOD. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash HFPOD, fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and you can get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash HFPOD. It's 2020, so it's time to leave some things behind from last year. What I'd like to leave behind is cleaning up my kid's guinea pig cage. But one thing I don't need to worry about is my wireless bill. My network coverage is better than ever because I switched to Mint Mobile. They can cut down your bill to 15 bucks a month for the same premium coverage you get with your existing carrier. I know what you're thinking, this is too good to be true, but they know what they're doing. Mint Mobile reimagined how you buy wireless and made it all online, passing the savings directly to you. Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text, plus 4G LTE. You can use your phone, keep your same phone number along with all your contacts, and if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash hfpod. That's mintmobile.com slash hfpod. Cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hfpod. Thanks, Mint Mobile.
Well, I want to ask, I think, Brian, you mentioned a experience in Miami that wasn't good because you were on the second level. So it seems like maybe in general, is it just better to be as close as possible and, you know, as visible of the band as possible? Is that sort of a, a general rule in terms of where you try to be at the shows? Each, <clears throat> this is Brian, each person has their own preference where they want to sit or stand. Um, normally, being up in front is just easier to see the band play. I can follow them playing the instruments. Uh, some people think, oh, you're just using an excuse to get up to the front of the stage. I'm like, no, it's just for visual. Uh, sometimes I like to just be in the back and watch the visual light show. Uh, for example, Miami, the seats we have were in the far back, first row at the 200 level. The light visuals were great, but trying to pick up what the band were playing at first was a little more complicated. So we didn't know the music that well. We were so, you know, 3.0 noobs. That's what we are. Um, other venues, they put us up in the front. Colorado, Dick, for example, they have the reserve spot every year. It's nice, but sometimes you get people trying to sneak in, lurk in, find a way. Hey, I know this person. Come on in. It's like, no, just get out. This is our space. It's a reserve spot for disabled people. I think Aaron is actually one of the people that she's been in and knows what I'm talking about also. Um, I just want to add something to this comment too. Um, we go through the normal procedure to get the tickets, um, but it becomes more of a headache because when we get the tickets and then we have to look and find, you know, the ADA department and find the contact. And Brian tends to be the one who does this. Thank, and I think very grateful for that. <laughs> but the problem is, is, you know, we contact the ADA department and basically, they'll tell us something different sometimes than, you know, than Ticketmaster or Live Nation might have said. And so then we have to figure out, okay, well, where and how are we getting these tickets? And, and then it becomes um, a bigger problem when we find out then we have to actually exchange the ticket because sometimes we might not get the same barcode to download, you know, for the music later. And so that a lot of people have a misunderstanding that, we pay less than any other people. We don't. It's the same price. Um, we pay the same price and as a regular fan. It's just another level of accessibility that has to be equal, you know. And when we go up front, it's more of a visual accessibility reason as opposed to just favoritism or, you know. Well, we do walk around sometime in the back if we see a better light show or, or whatnot, if we want to feel the music differently. So we will sometimes move around that way too. But specifically in Miami, so we we're in the upper level, and then the interpreters were, I guess, on some kind of platform, and the light was on them, but we couldn't understand or try to figure out the concept behind that. <clears throat> so after the show was finished, um, we contacted um, the arena, but their response was not very knowledgeable of the set, you know, the setup. So why it's, that's why I think it's very important for us as deaf people, when we're looking for accessibility to venues, just to make sure that they understand what we're looking for before, you know, they actually put it in action. Got it. Thank you for that. Chris, do you want to talk about either the venues or, or anything else? Because we're, we're going around and haven't talked to you in a few minutes. 
actually I would something related to that. I have definitely seen a bunch of times where I have reached out to venues and they're like, ah, a deaf patron, let's see, I'll give you this phone number and you contact this person. Um, but this person usually ends up not being available for weeks at a time. So then I have to go back to the original person and navigate this and every venue is different in terms of their process. Some of them are experienced and seasoned at getting interpreters and some are rookies at getting interpreters. Um, MSG, you definitely really have to start at the top and go to the managers and do the managers really wanna provide accommodations for deaf fans? I think often they don't actually because it takes a lot of time and you have to sort of schmooze these people um, there was one year where I really went at it with MSG because they had a terrible system at the time. And there are some folks uh, in Boston, there are a lot of venues where they really know what they're doing. They've been around. Um, there's uh, one person who really was a trailblazer with a lot of these venues and said, I want access, I want these things in place. And I'm really grateful. I would just like to recognize Gary Alpert um, he has really been a pioneer for access for deaf people in the musical venues here in Boston. Um, so he's really made things a lot more easy for folks like me to be able to navigate that process and get interpreters. Where there, there are other venues where I'm not sure what's going to happen. Uh, Atlantic City, I've tried to uh, reach out through their website to request interpreters um, and tried to reach out to their box office about summer tour. Um, and you know, trying to figure out how I'm going to get access for those shows, um, trying to reach out to Fish, trying to reach out to the venue. Um, and you really have to finagle things sometimes to get a hold of the right person who can actually provide you with what you need. So um, not all of them know what to do. Thank you, Chris. Um, Aaron, can we hear your perspective on, on this? Because I know that um, you said that you saw a lot of Grateful Dead shows and it, from what I hear, the Grateful Dead had this figured out pretty well. So can you talk about the difference between seeing fish shows and dead shows and any other thoughts you have on the venue uh, discussion? Dead and Company, they have a, a routine setup. That setup has been in place since, I don't know, going on 20 years. And they use consistent interpreters. They bring in interpreters who are familiar with the music. And it's a really good will setup for the best experience possible with fish. You know, it really depends. Fish is newer and I hope over time, you know, that they can improve. It's not, you know, with fish, it's not, the music is newer and it's harder to find the right interpreters in most venues. And Donnie, I think I saw you um, at Pittsburgh in fall tour I was in the section right above the um, kind of zone where you were interpreting, and it seemed like that was, uh, I don't know how much you've been doing that, but can you just give a little bit of perspective from on the interpreters and on the dead versus the fish thing and how you've uh, been involved? My work with the, uh, the dead and company has been fabulous, uh, to say the least. Uh, they've made sure that we've had an appropriate depth zone, They've made sure that we've had an appropriate interpreter for each night. Uh, they made sure that it was non-negotiable with each venue. Most of the time, 
we are negotiating with each and every venue. It's a, each and every venue is a separate negotiation uh, in terms of payment, placement, access privileges, seating, lighting, uh, sound access, sight lines. Everything is everything that has to be renegotiated when we're doing the fish tour. But with Dead and Company, everything goes in their rider. And it becomes a standard practice for each and every show. And the deaf fans have come to count on that. So uh, when it comes to fish, we've had a real mixed bag. We've had venues that we've worked with in the, in the past many times. And those venues tend to go very smoothly. They understand what's needed and what works. But other venues, newer venues, venues we've never worked before, it, it's like the Wild West. We have to start from scratch each and every time, and sometimes the product is left uh, less than adequate. That being said, we have some terrific venues that we work with, places like The Gorge and Dick's and Spack and Fenway. They know how to do it. They know how to do it right, and they don't blink their eyes, but venues that have zero experience with it, they tend to go with their default fallback ADA accommodation, which is usually somewhere in the back, usually uh, substandard in terms of what the debting company provides. Aaron would like to jump in right now at this point and make some comments. I've had a number of shows at the Worcester Centrum in Massachusetts, which is kind of the hometown of Donnie and Chris, and they have some of the worst accommodations out there. They tend to set us up very far back in the stadium. You know, literally, you can't really see the show worth anything. And it really is not the best experience for an ASL user, somebody who's going to watch the interpreters, and see a fish show. It's like watching fish on your TV screen, except you're in the back of the living room. I would second that. You know, it, it makes a big, being close makes a big difference. Yeah, so one of, this is Joel, uh, the researcher. Uh, one of the things that I learned a lot about is, you know, all this is happening because of the American, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. And the ADA uh, basically was signed into law in 1990 and then really went into effect in 1992. And what it says is that it mandates that deaf people are legally required to be accommodated in ways that prohibit uh, discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including jobs, schools, transportation, and all public and private places that are open to the general public, which would be a concert. And then there's a specific requirement that a public accommodation provides effective communications. So effective communications doesn't necessarily mean good communications. And that's the reason why each venue kind of has its own way of uh, providing it, what it considers to be effective communication. So you'll have some places that do a great job. And then some places like Madison Square Garden, which is, you know, a favorite venue of fish every New Year's, uh, that apparently really doesn't provide very good accommodations and kind of... Uh, puts people up in the 200 level, which, you know, as you've heard from uh, some of the other guests here, is not close to the stage. Um, I, 
you know, probably should let the other people speak for themselves on this, but there are ways to trade in those tickets to get down onto the floor and to get closer. But then if you do that, they don't have specific kind of guardrails that are uh, giving uh, the deaf people some protection against, you know, random people who are coming up to them. And, you know, at a fish show, random people do tend to come up to you sometimes. Uh, I've had the opportunity to be in the deaf area, uh, the deaf zone, at three different shows. And I can definitely tell you there are a lot of people who come up. uh, Some of them are very well-meaning. They want to say how great it is and this and that. But a lot of times that's not necessarily what, you know, if people are enjoying a show, they don't necessarily want to be interrupted. And especially the interpreters who are busy working, they want to be able to uh, do their job and to provide the right communication. So, uh, you know, a lot of times people think that they're, you know, just paying tribute to someone, you know, to, they want to connect to the deaf fans or to the interpreters, but, you know, really that's not the most helpful thing. Um, but, you know, I should probably at that point uh, let deaf, their deaf, fellow deaf guests speak for themselves on that. This is Chris. Uh, I, I just went to New Year's at MSG. It was my first time since 2014. I was going in 2014 with two of my friends and they already had set up interpreters at that time. I didn't know who they were. Uh, I went and they were two random interpreters, not folks that I was used to. Um, they were okay, but the setup was horrendous. And this was 2014. At that time, it was in section, I believe, 114. But you were looking at the floor from section 114. The interpreters were not in the direct sight lines. They were off to the left about 25 feet to the left. So if you're watching the interpreters, you basically get whiplash when you try to look at the band. I have uh, objected to that setup for quite some time, really for years. Um, And it got to the point where I was pretty much done dealing with MSG. Um, Basically, they got to a point where they were done dealing with deaf people and they were trying to force deaf people to watch interpreters who were in a separate video studio and watched the interpreters secondhand on closed circuit televisions, uh, seated further in the back. Um, so basically people were locked out of the experience and stuck in the back like second class citizens. Um, so since that time, uh, everything really has changed. I've seen some small areas of improvement with MSG. Uh, I this past New Year's, and the person that I dealt with from the ADA department uh, was more accommodating. She was more attentive. I felt like she really listened to me. So I do have some hope that there is a possibility of change with MSG. But there are other venues uh, where what they consider to be a reasonable accommodation is giving you a tablet. I've heard that they have threatened to say, here, here's a tablet. You don't get a live interpreter. Here's a tablet. You have to just deal with that. Okay. Um, some venues, when I've dealt with them, they believe ADA law says you must provide an interpreter, and that's good enough. They feel they comply with the ADA law. It's up to them. Uh, I don't speak for venues, but... When some people request interpreters, it's not always the venue. It's always sometimes with the promoters. The promoters actually are the ones that are paying for the event. Um, the promoters also responsible for deciding who they want to hire. It's not 
I want this person. They can decide. They have the final say on that. No salt to Donnie. I know you love doing all the shows and everything, but... <laughs> um, but the process for ADA itself is, is, it is complex. For example, Atlantic City, uh, social media, if you go to the website and you try to see contact information or on the Ticketmaster site, you click on it, it takes you to the webpage and all you see is the picture of fish playing. There's no link for contact, no ADA information, there's nothing listed. Still, I've tried today, no luck for the time to find interpreter for the show. Reach out to fishticket.com. I emailed them and said, I have tickets for one night. My friend has tickets for the other night. We need interpreters. They said, we can't find your name. Please have the other person contact us. It's kind of like, okay, can you give me a contact name? They didn't respond to that. So now my buddy had to get the tickets, get the interpreters for that show. Um, with, in regards to accessibility, it would be great if Fish actually had a dedicated person you know, or a specific contact or an email to make it easier uh, to request interpreters, not just for interpreters, but for everybody. Uh, it's just a little more complex when we try to get tickets for a show and reach out to them and they say, email this person. Email them. Three weeks later, they're going to respond back. Oh, we don't have any interpreters. Like, oh, well, okay, the show ended last week. Thanks anyway. You know, it's just like the response time is a little ridiculous at times. Myself, I prefer to reach out to the venue, explain to them, this is what I would like, if possible. You know, if you have seats over on the side or front of the stage, I try to work with these venues. Some venues are just, you know, you show up and they're not prepared, like, oh, we're scrambling, we'll get someone here as soon as possible for you. Or they don't have a place reserved or session reserved. And that's thing you know, you're on this little side seat, like with two chairs and a little chair in front of you. And it's like, okay, thanks. A little bit of a buzzkill. Um, and uh, Mike, if you want to jump in, I, I did want to ask, like, what do you think fish can do? Because it is complex, like you said. Both you guys have said it's complex. Like, there's multiple people involved in multiple layers. There's promoters, venues, the band management, and and lots of others. So, what would you say fish could do to like help make this better overall? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, I, I don't. You know, I'm trying to talk bad about fish. But, you know, specifically when it comes to each concert, each venue, or, you know, each band, they should have a dedicated person who is very familiar with the ADA, not just some random person that got stuck in there, like somebody who actually has expertise with ADA, who can accommodate what, we, what our needs are. And I'm okay with, you know, getting the ticket through the normal procedure, but if the venue could, you know, hold some specific tickets for people who are disabled and we can get those tickets, once we got the confirmation that we got the tickets, then we, then we can actually, you know, start to work out the interpreters. But the biggest, biggest problem which is with each venue, a lot of times they look for a cheap way to save money by hiring an unqualified interpreter or just some random company that's nearby um, to that area. For example, when oh when we had the washout with Colorado at Dick's, you know they had it already was set up, so we got the tickets, and then we had to go to customer service to get a special wristband. They did allow us to go down to the ADA area, and it was awesome. As opposed to when we went to Camden recently, 
and we had the same plan as dicks, but they got confused trying to understand why we had a regular general admission ticket, and then why would we need a wristband? So then we had to contact Donnie, and he was on the other side of the venue and had to walk all the way over just to show security to get him to let us down there. So it'd be nice if Fish had, you know, one designated person who can work out all of the logistics for each venue um, instead of us, you know, trying to scramble around to, you know, barely make it. Because, you know, we have a hands-on experience with, you know, with venues who don't hire the interpreter till the last minute, you know, which we appreciate, but, you know, we can, you can see in their lack of skills, you know. Thank you. Um, Donnie or Aaron, do you, do you all want to weigh in on this? Yeah. Hi, this is Aaron speaking. This is 2020 and really, you know, the, some of the techniques and approaches from the arena feel like 1950s, you know, how we get better access, it's through education every single day, and that's what we do. And to, to, to put it quite frankly, it becomes a hassle and a burden upon the deaf people to continuously educate all the time. You know, to just ask for the right interpreters, to ask for the right accommodations, to ask for the right logistics. It's like, and we're paying top dollar for our tickets. It's not like we're getting in for free or anything. If we buy a ticket, we want to make sure that we have an interpreter that knows all the music. And if they don't know the music, like, why are they even providing the access in the first place? It's like garbage. It's a garbage accommodation when you try to bandit it that way. You know, and that's why the deaf people are very hard on the venues. They're very, uh, they want to demonstrate that Deaf and hard of hearing people have a legitimate right. It's not like we're trying to prove a point, but we're deaf concert goers, and this is what we need. And lastly, every venue is still in need of education. If it's basic ADA laws, what access means for deaf and hard of hearing people, uh, they really should know better. Thank you. Chris, any thoughts? I, I would say that it would be nice... Uh, to have a point person, someone who worked on the fish end of things, someone where they would be able to review things daily and say, what about deaf folks? Are there any deaf patrons coming to the show tonight? That would be so nice to have that luxury, to have one point person who's sort of always keeping us in mind and making sure that deaf folks are getting the right accommodations. Um, Just that one person. Thank you. And Donnie, do you have thoughts on that? on the dead versus or dead and company or, or grateful dead versus what fish is doing or what other bands are doing. Is there a simple answer or is it pretty like different depending on the band? Uh, yeah, this is Donnie speaking as an interpreter. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to have uh, a working relationship with live nation and dead and company production who do keep, their deaf fans in mind. They do make sure that there's something within their rider that enables a deaf zone and consistent sign language interpreting uh, hiring practices. They don't they don't permit other venues to hire their own interpreters. They want to screen and place their own interpreters. Fish has really never had that. Uh, however, 
I've had some positive experiences with fish as well, with it, um, the festivals, Curveball and Magnaball. They went out and screened and hired their own interpreters based on resume and experience. They do take care of us when we are on site and we do have appropriate accommodations. However, they don't necessarily intervene when venues are making uh, their own decisions independent of what is standard practice in our view or what is uh, standard practice in previous previous experience. They just kind of defer to the venue and that's a lot of times where we get kind of stuck. So for MSG to have a standard practice of putting their interpreters in the 200 level, that doesn't really jive with the standard practice of other venues, but they just defer to MSG in those situations. Cool. Th- thanks, Donnie. And Joel, I think, wants to jump in, and then we'll do like a couple more minutes because I-, I had a- one more specific question, but go ahead, Joel. Yeah, so at the end of my research, I basically have a few you know, recommendations or... I guess if Fish was interested in kind of making some improvements and uh, and the thing that I've heard from pretty much most people involved is similar to what Donnie just said is that they could just put something in their rider. It's not, you know, the simplest thing out there, but it, it wouldn't be that difficult to just sort of emulate what uh, Dead and Company are doing. And then also widespread panic happens to have uh, quite a good policy when it comes to their deaf and hard of hearing fans, uh, where they have one main interpreter, uh, her name's Edie Jackson, if any uh, widespread fans are out there. And uh, they, she doesn't do all the shows, but she does most of their shows. And she's very familiar with the music. She gets on stage sometimes even. And, uh, and you know, that's considered to be kind of best practices. So, you know, fish might... Uh, in, in my in my uh, opinion, or you know, I don't exactly know. Uh, they probably just aren't necessarily aware of what they potentially could do. I actually have sent a copy of my research just recently to Fish Management. I'm hoping they take a look, and you know, maybe they'll make some adjustments. I, I you know, I can't say, but. Uh, it's in my estimation that they probably just don't know what they could do because they're busy putting on concerts and doing a million other things and they don't, you know, they're not experts when it comes to deaf and hard of hearing uh, fans and the accessibility and accommodations necessary. I'm hoping maybe after this podcast and if they do take a close look at my study that maybe they might make some improvements. I think it would make a big difference to the people that you're hearing right here on the show. Cool. Thanks, Joel. And thanks everybody for your input. So I have a question just from a fan perspective people who are listening and people like me um, hearing fans, how do you, how, how can we interact with you all at shows without, you know, ruining the vibe or experience? Um, because like Joel said, a lot of times random people come up and want to say hi and, and chat with you. So just curious, like what, what's your, and it's probably different for everyone, but what's your personal preference on sort of interacting with people at shows and um, making new friends? Don't talk to me during the show when the band is playing. Okay, that, that should go <laughs> yeah. for that everybody. Go knows for that. But some people they uh, they still talk to me during the, when the band is playing. Uh, talk to me before, during set break, or after the show. You know, if a great song comes on, you might just tap me on the shoulder and nod, having an agreement. That's cool. But if you try to have a conversation with me, I'm going to say just I'm just going to ignore you. That's what's going to happen. You know, that's best people, practice for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. Um, the 
the only other thing is if you, when I go to show, how sometimes when people dance in front of me, they kind of keep moving back and bumping into me. They get annoyed when I say, hey, you're stepping in my spot. And like, some people need like 25 feet of space. Some people need enough room to spin. Um, but all in all, really, if you're just cool with everything and you enjoy the music, that's what everybody is there for. That's fine. Um, but just don't disrupt anybody during the music. That's, they're there for the music. That's pretty much, I think, the gist of it. Mike? Oh, uh, yeah, I wanted to add to Brian's comment. I, I agree with everything. Um, and I'm more, I would like it more if hearing people actually approached us and asked us why we're there, um, as opposed to asking the interpreters and they ask the other hearing people. For example, every time I go to Colorado, my brother will join us, and people ask him, why are you in the front? Like, how did you get tickets like this? Blah, blah, blah. And my brother feels, you know, like he doesn't want to be burdened to answer for me. So it would be nice if they actually approached me. Yeah, when we go to other venues and we see, you know, the same fans and we talk with them, you know. Um, but it's something, because it's something new, a lot of times people are just kind of in shock to see, you know, people in the front signing. And then they feel that, you know, that they need to know now, why are you there? And But it's important to understand that, you know, we're enjoying the music at a different level. Um, and sometimes we do like to be left alone until, you know, step break or after the show. And then we talk just with everybody else. So, Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Um, Aaron, do you want to weigh in on that? And then, and then we'll hear from Chris last. Oh, yeah. Mike's point is very, uh, very poignant. I agree with him wholeheartedly. I can't tell you how many times that People have just gone right up to the interpreter to strike up a conversation without ever really acknowledging who is the primary audience. I'm like, dude, do you know even why these people are here? They're here for us. Uh, and we are here and we are here enjoying the show as participants, just like you are, but they tend to they tend to circumvent us and go straight to the interpreter. One of the worst things is bothering interpreters while they're interpreting. That's even more annoying. If you can imagine, like, jumping on stage and interrupting Trey while he's doing a solo, it's like almost, it feels almost as bad when they interrupt the interpreters while they're interpreting. Thank you. Chris? This is Chris. I would echo what everyone else is saying. I totally agree with Aaron. I've seen so many people... Um, hounding the interpreters and wanting to engage with them. I'm like, simmer down, people. Wait until after the show. Talk to them in the parking lot. Buy them a beer. Go right ahead. But you don't have to hound the interpreter while they're working just to try it. Like, what do you want, their autograph? I'm, you know, it's a little much. Um, I've also seen hearing people try to fool the ushers to get into the death zone. They, you know, maybe they know the alphabet or they try to spell their name to pretend to be deaf to get into the ADA section and take advantage of the system. That really irks me. Um, and I will boot them if I, I will personally say something, um, but it's really not my responsibility to do that. Yeah, this is Joel here, the uh, researcher. I have to say one of the funniest uh, things that I found in my research was actually it was Aaron that said it to me, but he explained how knowing ASL can actually reverse the disability because the deaf people can totally communicate using ASL uh, when it's super loud. 
So, you know, he said to me that he can be a chomper during sets, but only with his fingers. And uh, because, you know, hearing people aren't, uh, they'll have the uh, interference from the loud music, but uh, the deaf crowd, you know, they can communicate with each other a lot easier during a show. So I thought that was kind of a funny uh, reversal of kind of situations. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, I do, I do want to say thank you to, to the interpreters, Donnie, Beth, Katie, Megan, thanks for spending time with us today. And, um, and thank you, Aaron and Chris, for getting on the video with us. And thanks, Mike and Brian, for taking time out of your days. I learned a lot today, and I'm hoping that our audience learns a lot as well. So thank you guys all for doing it. Let's do it again at some point, and um, I'd love to buy you guys a beer in the parking lot at the next show. And thanks, Joel, for all your research and getting us all together today. Definitely my pleasure. It's amazing that we uh, pulled this off. Cool. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and created the ultimate music obsessives podcast, Discography. Each episode of Discography features an eclectic and wide-ranging slew of cool musicians doing long-form deep-dive interviews in which we rate either their favorite band's output or their own from zero to five stars. From Mike Watt rating the Minutemen to Terry Kirkman from The Association, Bob Nastanovich on Pavement, Bob Forrest on The Band, Bob Mayer on The Replacements, and Lou Barlow on The Zombies, each new guest swings a hard left into an area you either had no idea you needed to know about or know all about and can't believe you're not alone out there. Coming up, here's who we've got on the program. The Lemon Twigs, Robert Schneider from The Apples and Stereo, the Dedrick Siblings from The Free Design, Joel Self on mother-murdering superstar drummer Jim Gordon and a record-breaking 20-hour interview with the great Michelle Phillips about the mamas and the papas. You're not going to want to miss it because there's nothing quite like it. Don't let your youth go to waste, lads and ladies. Discography. Subscribe.